Today, I'm delighted to introduce our guest, Diana Winston. Diana is a well-respected author of books on mindfulness and meditation. She's also the founder and runs the Mindful Awareness Research Center at UCLA. So we talk about Diana's beginnings in a Buddhist Burmese monastery, where she learned to practice a very strict form of Vipassana meditation, which is insider mindfulness meditation. And then she was introduced to the Tibetan technique of Rigpa, or primordial awareness. And so we talk about the whole spectrum of different kinds of awareness, focused awareness, flexible awareness, natural awareness, pure awareness. And we talk about the sound of silence, the art of deep listening, Leonard Cohen, glimpse practices. And at the end, she leads us in a guided natural awareness meditation. So here we go. I have to clear my throat a lot. I hope you don't mind. So I'm going to have to stop and clear my throat from time to time. No problem. Like right now. (laughs) (laughs) All right. Well, I'm very excited that uh, you are here. I'm with Diana Winston. Welcome to our podcast. Thank you. I'm very, very excited to have you. I've heard so much about you and I love your book. So let's get into it. So you teach at UCLA and you run the Mindful Awareness Research Center. So please tell us more about it, Diana. Sure. Um, So we're a center, although we're called a research center, we're primarily an education center with research. Um, We've been teaching mindfulness to the community, to both UCLA and to the larger Los Angeles community, and even beyond that, through our programs and offerings. We have tons of classes and uh, day events and workshops, and then we have lots of recorded meditations that one can access online, online learning. So it's a big kind of education center devoted to teaching mindfulness and then doing the research that supports that. Um, So it got started, let's see. There was a professor, Susan Smalley, she's a geneticist, and she was researching ADHD and autism, and she was not interested in anything related to mindfulness or meditation. She was very kind of, um, just just thought it was all a little too woo-woo for her. And then she had a health scare, and she started to get involved in all sorts of ways to heal herself, doing meditation, mindfulness, yoga, things like that, and she healed And then she wanted to come back to the university and she was thinking like, how do I bring back what I've learned in some way that might be helpful to other people? And then she started talking to her colleagues and it turned out that there were all these people who were like closet meditators and or had a yoga practice or, and so she, um, she started to collaborate and decided to develop this center. And then we met, a postdoc had a, was doing some work on um, mindfulness and ADHD in adolescents and adults. And I came, I was living up in the Bay Area at the time, and I came to teach on that. And we sort of all decided that it would be a great job for me to be the teacher for the center. And I ultimately, after saying, I'm never leaving San Francisco, I'm never leaving the Bay Area. Anyway, I've been in LA for 14 years. Wow. And yeah. she was healed. She felt through meditation and mindfulness? I mean, I think she did sort of traditional treatments, but then all these complementary practices as well. It was like an early stage uh, melanoma, I think so. But she was fine now, totally fine. Wow. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So you have quite a story in terms of how long you've been meditating and how you got into it. Do you want to start telling us how you started, uh, how you began your meditation practice? 
I started in Asia. I was I graduated from college and I was kind of wandering around thinking, what am I doing with myself? I was pretty lost. I had done a semester abroad in Thailand when I was in college. And so I decided to go back to Thailand. But then I was like, I really want to go to India. I was feeling very drawn to go to India. And I had been I had been one of those like very high achieving young people and really like I've, I've got to succeed. And I was very, so much of my self-esteem came from my success and praise that I was getting from adults. And so I remember that I was living in Dharamsal, India, where the Dalai Lama has the government in exile. And I was studying, I was actually working for an organization there, a political organization, and they had all these um these lectures on meditation. And I went to one of them and I decided to, I was very skeptical. I think I've shared this, but I would sit in the back and I would just like eat chocolate bars really loudly and <laughs> crinkle the candy bars, wrappers. And because I was so skeptical and I was very political, not interested in spirituality. And then um, something hit me and I decided to do a retreat. And on that retreat, they talked about what's something that's called the the four truths about the world, sometimes called the worldly winds, the way things change all the time. And there's, there's um, where there's pleasure, there's going to be lack of pleasure, where there is gain, there's loss, where there's fame, there's disrepute, where there's uh, praise, there's blame. You know, and that we live in this world where people are constantly seeking the the really positive side of things. But because of the nature of the world, it's always going to change into something else and the negative. And so when I heard that, I was like, that's what I'm doing. I'm seeking this praise kind of madly. And like, I didn't feel like I had a center inside myself. And then she said, but there is something you can do about this. And this is to have a mind of equanimity, a mind of even-mindedness and balance. And if you can have that mind, then you're not going to be tossed and turned by the winds of the world. Mm -hmm. And I was like, that sounds amazing. And that's when I got into mindfulness. And she said, here's how you do it. You meditate. So that was the start. That was the very beginning of my practice. And, and then I spent the next I don't know, the next uh, 10 years living in monasteries and retreat centers in the U.S. and out and, and in Asia, practicing mindfulness over long periods of time, culminating with a year as a Buddhist nun in a monastery and um, uh, about 10 years into my practice. So you went the whole hog with uh, becoming a nun, right? I did. I did. Yeah, I was very, very dedicated and driven. I still was driven. <laughs> this yeah, time I became yeah. driven in meditation. Right. Yeah. Driven to get meditation right. Exactly. To, to do it perfectly. I wanted and, my A. Yeah. And you shaved your head and, and donned the robes and went to a monastery. Where was the monastery? It's It was in um, Myanmar, Burma, as we called it. Mm. Um, I had a teacher who was coming to the U.S., and so I would come and practice with him. And he kept saying, "Come to come to Burma, come to Burma. And I was like, okay. Finally, I decided it was time. I was ready. And so you had to get a meditation visa. Do you know they have those? No. <laughs> yeah. You have Do to they apply. still have them? I, I don't know what the political situation is right now, but you can apply for a meditation visa to live in one of the monasteries there. And I practiced. Yeah. So that was why I ended up there with him. And this is where you came to the realization about Rikpa or uh, natural awareness? Yeah. Um, so... How shall I get detailed? How do you what What do you want? Sure. Up to me. Tell Tell us. Yeah. Um, 
Well, because because this is big. I mean, we're, we're going to be talking about natural awareness, which mm-hmm. is something that usually is not talked about in the secular parts of mindfulness movements. And the fact that your your book deals with it is a great thing to bring that to the attention of the secular world. So however, you know, you want to describe how you came to that would be great. Okay. Um so for the first 10 years of my practice, I was practicing a Burmese style of meditation, sometimes called Vipassana. It is called Vipassana. It's sometimes called insight meditation. And it's like this very, very rigorous pay attention to the present moment. So by doing it, what it meant is like you were constantly being mindful. Every single second was the idea. And I would do it on long retreats. And so I'd wake up in the morning and be mindful and mindfully brush my teeth and mindfully put on my clothes and mindfully walk to breakfast and eat mindfully. And right. So I was just, I was totally immersed from the moment I woke up till the moment I went to bed. And I did that for many, many years because there was this strong ideology, like you have to, the more you practice, you're then you're going to like succeed in meditation, you're going to reach nirvana, you're going to reach enlightenment, you're, you know, you can call it, what it whatever it was, especially when you're practicing in these kind of cultural settings, like it's, um, it's very strong there. And um, it's less, it's less kind of taught in that way in Buddhist settings in the, in the U.S., but when I was, particularly when I was practicing in monasteries in the East, it's just very, you know, strong ideology of enlightenment. And so my practice was very, very serious. Like I was really working hard, but I was trying to be a good student again and again, right? It's the same theme. I'm going to get my A in in enlightenment, you know? Get the praise. Get my, get the praise. Exactly. Get the goodies if I was just good enough, you know? So I... I practiced in this way, as I said, for 10 years. And then when I got to the monastery, that's what I was doing. It was really, really intense. And be be mindful every single moment. And so this, this thing kept eluding me, right? This, this enlightenment. I wasn't even sure I knew what it was. I don't yeah. even know if it even existed. I mean, it exists in their traditions. There are ways that it's talked about. But it kept eluding me. So I kept trying to figure out how can I work harder to get it, you know? And so I would do things like stay up all night, not let myself sleep, sleep, or if I did sleep, I would sleep sitting up. I would try not to miss a moment of mindfulness. You know, mindfulness is just paying attention to our present moment experiences. And I was trying to like, I would get mad at myself if I missed a moment of mindfulness, if I spaced out for one second, right? So I was getting, you can kind of imagine, I'm getting more and more tight and driven. And I'm- Wait a minute, you were sleeping sitting up? I was trying to. I don't think I was that successful. <laughs> okay, because I'm wondering how that worked. How, how long? Well, you're you sitting st- in a lotus position, right, yeah. under a medita- a mosquito net, okay. and it's like a it's a meditator's mosquito net. So it's not like a bed mosquito net. It's like a dome that goes over the body. And um, do you feel the net on your head? Or no, is it above? because it's it's around you to prevent okay. the mosquitoes from attacking you. And then, but I would wake up in the morning and I would be you know, sound asleep on the floor. <laughs> so I tried. Yeah. I tried. Um, so I was practicing in this way, and I was getting a lot of, of uh, kudos, right? Like, oh, she's so devoted, and she's working so hard, and this is, you know, this is a great thing in the um, in these traditional religious settings. And, and it's also, it's, 
It's amazing to be able to practice in a Buddhist setting where it's been done in the same way for thousands and thousands of years, you know, mm. and it's, it, to me, it was a very devotional experience to, to see the way that, you know, the people would come to the monastery and be devoted to their teacher and make offerings and get practice. I mean, it was this incredibly beautiful thing. And then it had a little bit of, um, I mean, I don't want to say the cult word, but, but I'm, I'm like, I'm not talking for a year. Right. I'm isolated. I'm I'm in a foreign country. I'm only talking a little bit to my teacher every now and then. And they're telling me, work harder, work harder, work harder, mm. so you can reach this the spiritual goal. Right. Mm. So you can imagine what's happening inside me. Um in so there was a point where I'm working really hard and I started getting worse. It was like my meditation practice got worse than it was. And I'm like, wait a minute, I'm meditating every day for up to 15, 17 hours a day. I meditate, not by the way, sitting that whole time, sitting, walking, sitting, walking, right? So I'm not staying still all that time. Uh, and and then nothing was happening. And, and then I started to get worse. Like I couldn't practice. Suddenly I couldn't be mindful. I couldn't be mindful even for one second. And then I started having these waves of powerful emotions and feelings of self-hatred and I'm failing and I'm the worst meditator in the world and here I've come to this country to do the one thing that was so important to me and I'm failing. And so that went on for a couple of months and finally I just was like, I give up. So I went to tell my teacher I was leaving and he said, um, he said, okay, leave. <laughs> That's what he said. <laughs> and I said, okay. Mm -hmm. And then he said, but if you do, these forces of, you know, the, the, what he said, the, what he called the afflictions, they'll, they'll overwhelm you, right? They'll be, wherever you are, there you are. You're stuck with yourself. And I heard that and I thought, okay, wherever I go, I wanted to go to the beaches in Thailand. I thought that would be a good escape. Mm -hmm. But I was going to have this mind that was filled with self-hatred and, and um, despair, right? Mm -hmm. And so I decided to stay and I um, I ended up reading a book that was in the it, that was sitting sort of in their little library that had a very different perspective on on these teachings. So it was a book not from the lineage I was practicing in, but from a from a Tibetan Buddhist lineage. And I remember getting this book, and I started to read it, and it said it basically the bottom line was there's nothing to get. Like you're already there imagine that like what if whatever it is you're seeking is already present and what's the title of the book uh the tibetan book of living and dying right. it's a pretty famous book written by um Sogyal rinpoche he's a controversial figure why um accused of all sorts of sexual misconduct with... so it's not the same rinpoche that uh, died from alcohol no that's Chogyam rinpoche that's another yeah. rinpoche yeah that's another one that okay. had sexual misconduct yeah. alcoholism and yeah. he abuse. drank himself to death <laughs> yeah that's quite a meditation teacher yeah, right there. i know so this know. one also has controversy oh yeah oh yeah and the book is wonderful um i think it's an amazing book and it's you know it it's is. something one has to do is separate you know, the person from the teachings here. But but it has a lot of weird things in that book. Like uh, sometimes I feel like I'm reading the script for The Sixth Sense. You know, <laughs> they talk about when, you, you know, people die and then they talk to you after they're dead and you don't hear them, you don't see them. Yeah. And, yeah. Uh, you know, it's pretty horrifying. 
Because, you know, you would expect a book like that, you know, after you die, it's all peace and the great white light comes in and, you, you know, you feel fantastic and you don't want to go back. And he's saying, oh, after you die, it's just horrible. You know, it's it, it's terrible. You're going to be frightened to death. I mean, I mean how worse can it get? Uh, it's not what you expect from, you know, a Tibetan teacher of serene, non-dualistic awareness. Here's the thing. In Tibetan Buddhism, like all the Buddhisms, there's a lot of doctrine and ideology that is, that's that's what has been passed on culturally. That's what they believe and that's what they practice. And so they do have this whole worldview about the bardo, it's called, right? That space between mm -hmm. death and rebirth. Right. And it's, you have to believe it, right? right. Like, um and it's part of that tradition, and a lot of it is really out there. And it, it's, it is that book is a big mix of that stuff right. with some beautiful yes. meditation teachings yes. and other teachings. Beautiful so, teachings on luminosity, yeah, and and natural awareness, and right? Beautiful teachings, yes. So you got to kind of discern, yes. and I think so. For me, I was less interested in the like. You know the the, yes. the in between the Bardo yeah. realm thing, and more interested in those teachings yes. about mind. Yes. And so I read that book, and my mind really opened up, and it was something I suddenly relaxed, stopped trying so hard, and the next thing I knew, I found that my meditation practice was opening to well, just what you're saying, to these states of luminosity and joy and and openness and expansiveness and boundlessness and ease. And it was like a joke that there was something to get. I was laughing half the time. I'm like, there wait, what am I trying to reach? This like this is what it means to be human, to have these innate capacity of awareness. Like awareness is happening all the time in all of us. And all we have to do is tune into it. And so that that's what started to happen for me in the next part of my retreat. And I also realized that all this striving, this trying to get something was because I was not, I didn't like myself, you know? I was like, if I could just get enlightened, then I would be a good person. And then people would like me. And then I wouldn't be harmful to others. And and once I realized, like, no, no, there's nothing to get. And um, who I was as I was was absolutely okay. And so there was a lot of healing, a lot of compassion practices, compassion for self, compassion for the world. And that's what I did the next three months of the meditation. And so anyway, that's the long story <laughs> of my, um, the, the, the big, anyway, how my meditation practice led me to natural awareness practices. But after I left the monastery, I then spent many, many years studying with teachers who could teach me what I was, what I had been exploring on my own. So I studied with Tibetan, Tibetan teachers. Um, I studied with Advaita Vedanta teachers. I studied with some Zen teachers. I studied with uh, teachers in my tradition who had gone into this territory. So that became what I did for the next period of time. Um, yeah. Well, what's the difference between the Zen teacher and the teachers, uh, let's say the Tibetan teachers? Well, what, what do you find the differences or was for you? Um, there's so many different versions of everything, so it's a little bit hard to to encapsulate. Tibetan teachers tend to have a lot more guru devotion, mm -hmm. more ritual, mm -hmm. more visualizing, visualization, mm -hmm. mantra. Where Zen is mm -hmm. to me more stripped down, and it's also there's you know there's Soto and Rinzai, so they're you know they're different versions. Like right. I've never done the koan practice. I don't know if you have. Have you ever done that? Yes, uh, Mu. <laughs> 
I don't know the answer. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. um, so, but so Zen tends to, you know, Zen has its own kind of ritual and form, and it, ten, you know, it's more Japanese influence and Tibetan is influenced, of course, mm. by Tibetan cultural influences. Mu, Mu is the famous, you right. know, just to mention that. So, does a dog have Buddha nature? Is the question, and the answer is Mu, which in Japanese means no, <laughs> and that you're supposed to uh, ruminate on it as if you had a, a hot iron ball in your mouth and not open it until you have the answer. So, uh, so yes. What is the sound of one hand clapping? They can't see, but what I did was I clapped my own hand. Yeah. <laughs> but I don't think that right. is actually the answer to that koan. No, it was right before you did that. That was the sound. Oh, yeah, good. You're good. <laughs> by the way, by the way, there, um, some people come to me with ringing in the ears mm -hmm. problems, mm -hmm. and it's interesting that you know Ajahn Shah, there's somebody that uh, he's a great uh, uh, meditation master. He calls the ringing in the ears the sound of silence. Yes, yeah. And I've studied with Ajahn Sumedho, who's his, who was his Dharma heir. He um, he also does that practice. He talked about it quite a bit. So, can you tell us more about? Awareness, natural awareness. What does that mean exactly? Okay, so I want to back up a little bit and then I'll get into it. So so when I started teaching at UCLA and started teaching in a secular context, so I had, I had been trained uh, after I came back from the monastery. I stayed in, in, I stayed in Asia for a number of years, but I came back and then I started being trained in a Buddhist context to teach mindfulness. And then after a while decided that these practices were so amazing and they could be offered to anybody regardless of their background, regardless of their religion. And so that was when I got hooked up with Sue Smalley, who I mentioned earlier, and UCLA. Mm -hmm. So when I first started teaching, I was teaching very much like I practiced for the first 10 years. And if you look at the mindfulness movement in general right now, what you're going to see, like the mindfulness-based stress reduction teachings, the teachings that are kind of the popularized version of mindfulness, that there's a lot out there, and we can talk about that if you want. But um, you're seeing this focused awareness, pay attention to your breathing, you know, be really like... Uh, there's no natural awareness teachings except in, right. implicitly that's right. a little bit. And so that's how I taught for those ten, first 10 years of um, teaching at UCLA. And then there was a certain point where I realized that I think it would be really, really valuable to bring these other practices into the repertoire of teaching, not because they're better, but because that we I want people to have a range of ways to practice, and different things are appropriate at different times. Yes. And so I call this now, I was trying to like come up with a way for us to understand it, and so I call it a spectrum of awareness practices. Yes. So there's practices that are very focused. There are practices that are more investigative or... Um, or well, that's the area of flexible awareness, and then there are these natural awareness practices, and they're all on a spectrum right. of of uh, possibility of how to practice. So the the important thing about it is they're all good, right? It, right. Like I don't want anybody to think, oh no, I've been just paying attention to my breathing for ten years. I wasted my life. That's right. that's ridiculous. It's a right. wonderful way to practice, and I still practice that way. But there was this whole territory of practices that 
really hadn't been taught within the secular context. And that's yeah. what I was interested in trying to figure out how yeah. to talk about. So that was kind of, that's kind of the intro to your answering your question. Yeah. So I call this natural awareness and and I and I you know different people call it different things awakened awareness you mentioned the word rigpa which is comes out of the Tibetan tradition um there's so many there's yes. there's m- many ways of talking about it I like the term natural awareness because it points to something that I see is really important about natural awareness that it's accessible to yeah. everybody. It's yeah. not some like mystical state. Right. You do not have to be in the monastery for nine months practicing before you can access it. And whenever I go and I teach about it, and I'll say, even total beginners, I'll say, well, who's been out in nature and just felt connected, peace at home, awake in your body and mind? And many, many people raise their hand and say me. So... So it's it's a natural quality yeah, awesome. that that humans have. Yeah, it's part of our birthright. So, so that's why I called it natural awareness. And then my brilliant. Di- oh, thank you. Glad, yeah, glad, glad you like it because people relate to it, and yeah, it's fundamental, right? It's yeah. always on. It's always there. That's not always accessed, but it's always right. there. That's right. That's right. And that's the thing. I mean, so the, what I often say is it's like a radio station that's blaring, but we're often not tuned into it. We're right. tuned into <laughs> the anxiety station or the depression station, right? And so this is this is kind of these teachings point us over in that direction when we're, we want to access it. And it's really this, this open, expansive, effortless type of mindfulness that's more about resting in our being than doing anything in particular and um and it's not well i don't know how, i don't I know how technical to get at this point but oftentimes in meditation we're noticing things right. which i call the objects of awareness like you're noticing your breath you're noticing a thought you're noticing a sound and so forth mindfulness uh, sorry natural awareness is awareness of awareness itself that which notices right so for me, there's a, uh, another step, I think, which is natural awareness, but maybe it's more intense, like we talked about before, where you're feeling this tremendous surge of energy, which is like a, an energy field of awareness that you're just a part of. You're just flowing with the flow of this limitless, incredibly powerful energy of awareness. And it's a physical as well as a mental experience. It's like your whole entire being is awareness. Everything about you is just awareness. And everything about the world is just awareness. And and maybe is that like natural awareness, but maybe, you know, a little more intense? On steroids. (laughs) (laughs) Um, I think it's in the same territory. I think it's hard to my experience with my within myself and working with students is people experience it in really different ways and different degrees and different intensities and different flavors and characteristics. So what you're describing, I've heard other people describe before, and you have a long time meditation practice. And so you're going to be accessing states of consciousness that that are very supported by your years of practice. And so having it as an embodied, as an embodied state, absolutely, yeah. as an energetic state, absolutely. It can be very different things. So I, it's hard for me to say, oh, yeah, that is natural awareness, sort of, but with a different, you know, I'm not going to say that. I'm going to just, I'm going to say, yeah, if we use it as a big term, natural awareness, lots of different varieties of it. There are things that overlap. Like the natural awareness is a state where you're, are you in time at the same time as you're outside of time? 
Are you in both states at the same time, <laughs> at, at the same instant? Sometimes there's a quality of timelessness and and like just thisness, and you're just there. Like time evaporates or something, so it can feel like that. And sometimes it doesn't feel like that. You know, I mean, it's it seems very different to me at different times. Yes, I get that. Mm. I get that. Mm. So I want to circle back to what you talked about the spectrum because I really like the way you lay that out in your book. By the way, the name of the book is what now? <laughs> A subtle plug right in the middle. Go ahead. The Little Book of Being. Little Book of Being. Practices and Guidance for Uncovering Your Natural Awareness. And I love it. And I love the, the focus that you have on natural awareness. Describe the, uh, in a little more in detail what the spectrum is. What does that mean, focused awareness, flexible awareness, as opposed to the other kinds of awareness? Yeah, okay. So if you use the spectrum and thinking about on one end is very effort-based and narrow, and the other end is very wide open and effortless. Okay. okay? So let's start at the end that's very effort-based and narrow. Right. Um, on that end, you're doing a meditation practice where you're focusing narrowly on something. So you can think of it, a really simple way to think about it is like a camera. We can take a telephoto lens with a camera, or we can take a panoramic lens with a camera, and then we can take anything in between, right? So your, our meditation, our awareness can be the same way. We can do practices that are more like a telephoto lens. We can do practices that are more like a panoramic lens. We can do it more like you're taking a photo of your friend. Right. Um, so so. So this one end of the spectrum is the focused focused awareness. So it's, it's like concentration, right? Yeah, concentration. yeah, yeah, exactly. It's the it's the narrow um, telephoto lens. What we're doing is we're gathering, collecting the mind. Where you know our minds tend to be scattered. Everybody has these monkey minds. Right. So we gather it, collect it, unify it, stabilize right. it, and the the practices that are most often taught in this end are like pay attention to your breathing. Your attention wanders, bring it back. You know, something that's very focused and narrow. And what are the benefits of that practice? Well, just what I was talking about, the, the concentration that develops, the stabilization, right. it calms our mind uh -huh. down. It makes you calm. Calm, peace. Yeah. Right. Um, some people, if you practice it over a long period of time, it actually can lead to blissful states of mind. So, right. for instance, for I don't know, I'm sure you've had listeners who do transcendental meditation. Right. And that's just the repetition that's of right. a mantra. And you're just staying on it. Your mind wanders away. You go back and they report really deep blissful states of consciousness. Okay. So and you're that, building a skill too, to be able to focus, to have a steady state of mind that's undistracted, unfragmented, unified. That's right. Because if I say to people, okay, now just be aware, most people will be like, what do I do? You know, yeah. I, it's, it's too hard. But if you have a mind that's stable, then you can turn that to attending to whatever else you're aware of. So that's, the, that's focused awareness. Somewhere in the middle, I have um, what I call, uh, well, I have different names for it, but flexible awareness and also investigative awareness. Investigative awareness is when you're paying attention to um, to your experience. So you're no longer just, just keeping your meditation on your breath, but you're noticing other things that are happening. So let's say you're with your breathing, but then an emotion comes through. And so you bring your attention to the emotion, you feel it and you sense it and you notice what's happening in your body. So you're kind of investigating with your sensing, sensing, you know, you're not thinking about it, but investigating it, the experience. And when we do that, the benefits are we 
kind of get to know ourselves better, we might have insight or understanding into the changing nature of things. And for instance, an emotion comes and goes. You know, we often have an emotion, we think we're going to have it forever. But if you can meditate with an emotion and see it arise and pass away, this is like very liberating. It's very exciting. So so we can take our focused mind and begin to investigate our body-mind experience. And this is kind of classic mindfulness meditation. These first two are mm-hmm. very much classic mindfulness meditation. A third area that I use that's kind of still also flexible is, is what I call um, uh, choiceless awareness. Not just me, but a lot of people do. And that's where you're focusing on many things. So instead of returning your attention back to your breathing, you might notice there's a sound and then a memory and then an itch and then my heart is beating and there's a breath. And it's when our attention opens up so much. So now remember, we're moving over to the wide open side. This is a wide open practice um, where anything, we can be present with anything. And it gives us a lot of equanimity, what I was pointing to, because you can just be present no matter what's happening, creating a balance of mind. And then if you were to go to the far end of the spectrum, open, spacious, wide open, effortless, mostly effortless. It's not completely effortless, and I'll tell you why, because you have to ha- use a little effort to be effortless. Right. <laughs> but, um, but that's that territory. So that's the territory of natural awareness, where instead of focusing on, an, on the objects, and I don't want to get too technical, but I'll try to explain, you're focusing on the awareness itself. Mm-hmm. It's called awareness of awareness practice. Right. right? And that's when that that's the territory of natural awareness. Our mind is open, right. spacious, all sorts of things are arising. We're undisturbed, but we're not even totally specifically noticing things. We're just we're just here. We're just present. Right. Yeah. So you you mentioned not going back to the breath when you're in um I guess a very open part of mindful awareness or or that's the choiceless awareness stage uh-huh. where you don't go back to the breath. So for me, that's very difficult. Like when if I'm in a state of open awareness and a bright new shiny thing comes across my field of, uh, of consciousness, I'm going to chase it. You know, whether it's a thought or an emotion, you know, you're very tempted to you go chase it wherever it's going to lead rather than just sit calmly and let it go away. Um, so I know in my case, I, I have to go back to the breath unless I'm caught in, in, in pure awareness, unless I'm just flowing with that, then what, like you say, it's effortless. It just takes over. But that, that period between, you know, not chasing after a shiny object and getting into choiceless awareness that without going back to concentration to me, it sounds difficult, but it seems in your experience, it's a thing. It's like, it's not that hard. Yeah. You're probably doing it more than maybe I'm able to describe it like that. It's resonating because it's, it's really just, okay. There's a difference between chasing after an object and getting lost in that object and just noticing that there it is. Like it's arising in your meditation. Oh, there's a sound. You hear it. And then you have an itch and you notice it and then a thought passes by. So I think you you probably do it more than you think you're doing it. It's my (laughs) guess. I don't know. But but it's one thing to notice, one thing just to say about all of this is not every practice is going to be right for every mind. Like our minds are so different. And that was one of the reasons for designing the spectrum in my mind because because 
some people are going to find that they really love the focused awareness practices and that's all they want to do. And they come, they come to my natural awareness class and they think, what is this? It's not, it's not helpful to me. It's not useful, but this is really useful. So if there's certain ways of practicing that don't speak to you or you're doing differently, don't worry about it. <laughs> Just keep doing what you're doing. All awareness is good awareness. It doesn't matter what type, what type it is. Yeah, but I think it's really important what you've done in the book to bring to people's attention that there is this other state that you can reach in meditation. I think that's very important that you've done that. People should know that that's a possibility. Yeah, yeah, yeah. absolutely. I, I think so. I mean, that was my goal. In so one of the things I really, uh, that resonated with me in, in your techniques is when you sit and you say, you sit quietly and, you know, you get settled, of course, and then you listen to sounds as if you were listening to the sound of music. So naturally, I, that's totally resonates. And, and I love that method. Personally, I, that's one of the techniques that I teach. By the way, I, I, I don't know if you know this, but there was a composer, Pauline Oliveros. And you know her uh-huh. and her work? Okay, uh-huh. so that was a part of her uh, work where you listen to the silence farthest away and you try to put a tone to it and you sing to it and it becomes a meditative groove. But then you talk about uh, keeping your eyes open which I think you know I can I can identify with because I think that's very important. You want to wake up. Why close your eyes if you <laughs> you want to wake up? And you talk about we usually are focused in front of us. What's in front? And you ask and you guide your uh, practitioners to listen to what's behind them or to be aware of what's your back and what's behind you. That to me is sort of. It's a concentration practice. It's an aware. It's a mindfulness practice at the same time, and at the same time, it can lead to natural awareness. Is that is that right? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I see it as honestly what it is 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 for me is kind of breaking our meditation habits. You know, I think people who have been meditating for a while they tend to do the same thing over and over, like pay attention to your breathing. Boom, boom, boom. Um, these practices open us to the more spacious end of practice. And so using different senses, sense doors, helps you to do that. And it breaks the habit of eyes closed, noticing my breath, which is the typical thing. So, so what we do is we, I start people out just opening to sounds. And the reason that, it, that I do that is it's really easy for people to be mindful of sounds for the most part. It's just we're, we're naturally mindful of sounds. I mean, if we just were to everyone who's listening, just to stop for a moment and listen to the sounds around you. It's quite easy to do, and you were just aware of sounds. And so one of the ways of expanding our, our awareness is to try to be as aware as far away <laughs> as you possibly can, and that kind of takes your consciousness, I guess, outside of like like right in your body, yep. out, out, out. Yep. So then what I do is then, you were, as you were saying, I try to do it with the other senses too, and then sometimes put them together. So then I might suggest that people notice their bodies but imagine your body is blowing up like a balloon mm-hmm. and you can feel the space around your body and then let that expand. And then now add that to the hearing and then now open your eyes, you know, and add, look peripherally. So all of these are ways of, of kind of breaking habits and then expanding. And then once we've expanded, we can just sort of like rest and see what's here. 
And it's it's often really kind of fun and effective for people just to play with these other ways of meditating. Do you teach this to mm-hmm. to th- these methods of of this three hundred and sixty degrees panoramic yeah. attention? And and what kind of reaction do you get when you teach that? Um, I get a range. I get a lot of people who say, "Hey, this was so cool. <laughs> mm-hmm. I loved it." I get people who sort of feel like it's not for them, and I get. Some people say, "Oh yeah, I've been doing this for years." You know, I get a whole a whole range. But what I what I like is that it offers people more options in their meditation that they can see that that, that they're and that, I think that's probably been the strongest response is people saying, "Oh, there are other ways to practice, and I can try this and this and and really inviting in this territory of natural awareness into the 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 mindfulness like sort of what is known as traditional mindfulness practice. Do you ever have students that just cannot sit even if it's to listen to sounds? They just can't do it. Uh-huh. And if yes. you have students like that and you may know in your heart or believe that you can do it, but what how do you deal with that situation when you have students that just can't they can't sit and listen to their breath or follow the breath, and they can't do the sound meditation. Some people, it's hard to sit still. And so in that case, I would offer a movement or a walking meditation, something where, they, where they're more physical, and that usually can help people who really, really have a hard time. Sometimes what I might do is like the one minute meditation, like you can do it for one minute. Let's see what let's see what it's like, so that you can they can work them their way up. It it really depends on kind of what is the issue going on. Is it that I'm so anxious I can't barely sit with myself? Mm-hmm. In which case I might find some other thing for them to notice, like noticing the soles of their feet touching the floor, and to take them out of this kind of area where we like if we're noticing our breath, it can be very charged if you're super anxious. So there are different tools, and then it's interesting. Some of my friends who've been working with um, people with trauma have been using these natural awareness practices and said it's been really helpful for people who have a lot of trauma in their body and they start doing a more expansive practice. They're Mm -hmm. able to do it when they couldn't do just a simple breath practice. And in in these expansive practices, you say instead of focusing on the object itself, Mm -hmm. or you can focus on the object itself, but in addition, focus on the space around the object. Mm And so I've been trying to do that, and it's, you know, how do you focus on space <laughs> when there's nothing there? There's nothing to look at. I mean, how do you do that? Yeah, you know, it, it's one thing to keep in mind. In the book, I have what I call glimpse practices, and there's about 25 or 30, I can't remember how many, practices that you can do to help you access natural awareness. And all of them work differently for different people. Right. So that one may be one that's just sort of not, I mean, you can keep trying because you're curious. I'm going to keep trying. Yeah. I love the idea. I What I do when I'm doing that practice is I just sort of let my eyes be a little bit uh, just kind of, I wouldn't say blurry, but just unfocused. Yes, soft. And then sort of at, like really paying attention. Like I'm looking at you right now and I'm looking I'm looking at the wall around you as opposed to you right in front of me. So I'm sort of tuning into the negative space, really, I guess is what it is. And that- the background? mm, Like the air, the space. It's hard to describe. Some of these are hard to describe, but like like just noticing the things that are not as as opposed to the things that are, right? The, The space, the air. And that can, for some people, 
like kind of relax our minds instead of because we're so object focused we're so like we're always looking at things and people we don't often look at the sky the space yeah there's a saying i'm looking through you there's Mm. a a song that paul mccartney sang i'm looking through you yeah so i'm looking at you and i'm trying to see the space between us like you were describing and i see your eyes Uh and i see your hair so look Uh, around look around me I see a microphone. I see. Uh, I see the wall. You said you saw the wall. <laughs> Am I supposed to see the wall? I, I don't think there's a supposed to. I think it's just sort of what happens when you let your visual sense open up in a different way. You okay, know? I'll practice that. Yeah, see what happens when you do the listening uh, meditation. Listen to sounds. Mm-hmm. Do you ever guide your students to listen to silence at all? Oh yeah. Yeah, yeah. So how does that work? I mean, sometimes I'll just invite them to listen to the silence between the sounds. And that's that may be similar to what um, we were talking about, Ajahn Chah, Ajahn Sumedho, those, those Buddhist meditation teachers talking about the sound of silence, mm-hmm. like just listening. It's never really fully silent, no. right? There's always no. something going on. Right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But that can be something that one attends to, and it can be a very powerful practice. There's never silence in a conventional sense, in the material sense, mm. but there definitely is in the spiritual sense, in the metaphysical sense, right? I think so. Yeah. yeah. And yeah. that's a profound presence, a stillness. Yes. Yes. And in pure awareness, and maybe in natural awareness too, you're both really still, is a profound stillness emotionlessness and at the same time you're moving you're flowing with the energy of awareness it's it's that paradox that dualistic non-dualistic yeah it's beautiful it's really beautiful what you're describing so you quote leonard cohen (laughs) which i have to remark on so tell me how that how did leonard cohen how does this quote from leonard cohen come about um i'm a fan uh, and someone gave me, he has he has a set of etchings that he did, and he had little quotes and drawings, or not etchings, but they're like watercolors, I think. And they were, my friend found them, and she made a little poster and gave it, and I just loved the quote. And it, and when I would, when I hear the quote, and the quote was, oh no, now I can't do it off. Do you remember? One, one thing make, made him happy, and when he let go of that one thing, everything made him happy. So I hear that and my body just gets happy. Like there's something that happens in me, like, right? It's, it's very, yeah. very profound. Yeah. Yeah. And I was like, oh, it has to go in the book because <laughs> I love Leonard Cohen. <laughs> so the, is that from a song or? It's from these, these um, watercolors, which I can show you. You can actually look them up online. It's, oh, in, the, it's in the footnotes section of my book. Yeah. Okay. That sounds yeah. very Zen. Well, he was a Zen practitioner. You know that, right? He was an ordained Zen monk. Yes, yeah. He was a serious uh, He was Zen. really serious really practitioner. Really serious. Absolutely. And, uh, you know, I had lunch with his manager. This is just before he passed away recently. Mm. And his manager had written a book on meditation. On trans- really? Yes. <laughs> uh, on transcendental meditation back in, in the late 70s. So, so Leonard Cohen is one of also, he's an example of a musician who uh, practiced meditation to his ultimate benefit. Uh, he lived a, a long, very fruitful life, was able to create up to the, to the moment he died. He was creative. 
And so he's he's one of the role models. So when I saw, I I I, I would suspect that his background as in Zen resonated with you, maybe oh, unconscious. Totally. Oh, it did. To- I'm I'm sure. I mean, I yeah. knew I knew that was his background for sure. Yeah. And then you had a, you have one other quote in there, and this is uh, sort of just a, a random leap, but it's from Aldous Huxley. Mm. Do you remember the quote? Um. Yes, hold on. It is um, your own consciousness shining, void, inseparable from the great body of radiance, is subject neither to birth or death, but is the same as the immutable light. That's a good one. Yeah, yeah. I mean, it's very, these quotes are very personal to me. Like in some way, they moved me, and then I just stuck them in the book because I liked them. They affected me. That they, they like to me. They were doorways to natural awareness. Because one of the ways of of accessing natural awareness is through quotes, through poems, through um, through art. I mean, people people connect with that place of timelessness, of open luminosity, even you know, in the most unsuspecting ways. And so, quotes can do it. Yeah, I had a I had a sticky time with quotes in my book. Because <laughs> quoting from lyrics sometimes, you know, it's you need the permission. Yes. Oh, yeah. That's yeah, a, yeah. And so we did get permission from 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 a few, and mm-hmm. and some we didn't. So we we, we didn't put it in. But um, I'm always ad- admiring writers like yourself that can that can have these quotes. Uh, they're an important part of the whole mm-hmm. experience of reading. So. Um, one thing I wanted to ask you, uh, circling back to listening to sound, because that's major for musicians that meditate. Uh, we're phonocentric. <laughs> and, uh, you know, that goes back to the three uh, kinds of people in, in neuro-linguistic programming. Do you know about this? Uh, neuro-linguistic? Not so much. A little bit, but not so much. Right. So you're either visual, phono, or kinetic. You're a combination of all three, but there's one that dominates. Mm-hmm. So are you, which one are you? I think I'm probably visual, yeah. You're visual. That's how you're able to see the space between people in this space. <laughs> well, maybe I'm phono. I don't, I don't, I have to think about it. I think you have very strong phonocentric uh-huh. uh, tendencies because you talk about listening to sound so much. Mm. Okay. Which I haven't encountered, by the way. That's not a common thing that you read about in, in, in my, I mean, it's touched on, but you really elaborate on it, so... Uh, that would be my vote. Okay, uh, maybe that's what I am. <laughs> so one thing that I talk about to musicians is listening to the silence in music. And um, because you know how to listen to the silence in music, you can transfer that into listening to the silence in general Wow. on an everyday basis. And what happens when you teach that? Like what kind of... Res- what do you hear from the students? They look dumbfounded. Ah. <laughs> <laughs> no, I mean, they get it. I mean, I play examples, mm-hmm. like Miles Davis, for instance. But you're not playing like John Cage or something. Yes, we do, John okay. Cage. Sure we do. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Oh, they, by the way, you cannot find a good version of John Cage's 4 Minutes and 33 Seconds on YouTube. Really? Oh, no. It's a, it, they completely missed the point. There's a version where a guy's sitting at the piano and he starts, you know, opening and closing the the lid of the piano, and the whole point is to sit there in silence. Oh, yeah. maybe you should create one. <laughs> <laughs> well, this is a food, this is something to think about. Mm-hmm. 
So you mentioned glimpse practices. Mm -hmm. So um, both in natural awareness and in mindfulness, and probably in concentration too, or focused awareness, flexible awareness, and natural awareness, there are practices that you can do just for a few minutes. And I really like the way your metaphor or simile, I can't tell which one it is. Um, when you talk about pixels, when you're looking at a picture in a computer, let's say, and you know it's made up of these little dots. And each time you do, let's say, a minute of meditation, it's like a little dot. And they add up to become a big picture. And I think that's very inspiring and motivating and important for people to know that just meditating just for a few minutes or a minute here and there, it's just like a pointless dot in a, in a painting or in a computer picture. Oh, good. I'm glad you like that. It's helpful to me. People are always saying to me, how much do I have to meditate in order to change my brain? You know, because I'm, I, we look at the research behind this and there's no answer. Just so in case anybody's wondering, there has not been a research study saying, if you meditate this much, you will have these brain changes. So it's nice to just let people know that even a little bit matters. And it's like, it's a dose response. The more you do, the more good results you'll see. So Hannah, (laughs) uh, our co-producer has a question and she wants to know, what's your question? For people who are located in Los Angeles, for those in Los Angeles, and you you may know about other cities too, because I know you know about New York as well. For musicians, what resources do they have to learn mindfulness? Is that what you want? To learn mindfulness and and these practices. Um, So nothing specific to musicians, but to anybody in Los Angeles, our center offers all sorts of programs and events and classes that are going on all the time. And so if you go to our, You're talking about the, the, the UCLA Mindful, Mindful Awareness Research Center. One fun thing that you can participate in and musicians would probably like is every Thursday at 1230 at the Hammer Museum, I or one of my colleagues is there teaching meditation. So we have a big that big auditorium in the Hammer with all the pink chairs filled with 200 people meditating together. Um, We have an app now. We just developed an app called UCLA Mindful. And so everything that happens at the Hammer gets podcast onto the app. So we have that as well. Um, But we have classes, programs, workshops all around LA because we have affiliated teachers who are offering. We have a MAPS class. It's a Mindful Awareness Practices. Six weeks, 12 hours of learning the basics of mindfulness. And it, it's, it's, it's more about like the, an introduction to mindfulness than the natural awareness practices, but it's, um, it's really a good place to start, wonderful place to start. Maps. Maps. And we offer it online for the people who are not nearby. For musicians, they're going to think it's musicians' assistance program, oh, no. which was a big thing. Yeah, so we have our Maps program. I've trained now maybe like... 40 teachers in our program all around the world. We have people teaching it in Brazil. We have people teaching it in India, people in other parts of the U.S. And that, so it's a six-week evidence-based program. We've now had, I think, nine research studies looking at the efficacy of it. And it's basically just six weeks introducing you to mindfulness meditation. And you start with five minutes a day, and you work yourself up to 20 minutes. But you also learn how to apply it with difficult emotions, how to you know, work with physical pain, how to bring it into relationships and in conversation. So there's a whole bunch of tools you learn through the class. You know what I forgot to mention? I don't know, I don't know if we can integrate this at all, but 
you define practice kind of at the beginning of the book. You say, well, we call this a meditation practice or a mindfulness practice. So I'd love for you to define it. And I'll also tell you that, that this really resonated with me, struck a chord, because to me that's one of the big bridges that connect music and musical discipline with mindfulness meditation, the whole idea of practice. You may not see results right away. Just have faith that if you keep repeating the same exercises over and over again, it will reap benefits for you. You will see advancement. I don't remember what I said. <laughs> I know the feeling. <laughs> it was like, probably wrote that maybe. I think he said exactly what I, think I said. If I said what you said, I totally wholeheartedly <laughs> endorse what you okay. just said. I thought that was very important that you said that. So you also have, among the other million things that you do, um, you're trying to codify, I think, standards for mindfulness teachers and uh let me see if I remember that. I am something else. I forgot what I am. <laughs> I am TA, International Mindfulness Teachers Association. Okay. Um, this is so the field of mindfulness teaching is, we sometimes call it the wild, wild west. Like there's no regulation, there's no standards for professionalization, unlike many, many fields. Mm -hmm. um, and so, Right now, anybody can do a mindfulness workshop. They can they can they can put themselves up as a mindfulness teacher when they've only like meditated for a week or something. And and I see it all the time. It's not like I'm I'm making a joke about it. It's it happens. And you know, no other field like I could not play the piano for a weekend and then say that I'm teaching piano lessons. But in mindfulness, people do this. So this this grew out of a need for both to. Just to build standards of professionalization, collegiality, and also so that once it becomes a more standardized field, there's more potential for bringing it into things such as insurance companies covering it when it sees that there are standards. So right now we have the International Mindfulness Teachers Association. It's an independent body which people can join as a membership organization if, you, if you're a mindfulness teacher or in a teacher training program. And then we accredit training programs and um, to learn mindful to learn to teach mindfulness, and then we can offer a credential for people who have been through it through one of those training programs. So it's like a there's continuing education requirements, there's an ethics board, there's sort of the obvious things one would need in the standardization of the field. Okay. And we now have yeah. about 500 members, and I think 250 wow. accredited people. We've only been around like uh, not quite two years. You. This is not the first book you've written, Little Book of Being, mm -hmm. which I love. It's not the first book. You've no. written some other books. Tell us the other two titles, please. I wrote a book. My first book was called Wide Awake, A Buddhist Guide for Teens. So I wrote it for a Buddhist audience of teenagers. And that is still in print. I wrote it, I think, 2003. And then I have a book uh, called Fully Present, The Science, Art, and Practice of Mindfulness that I co-wrote with Susan Smalley, the scientist I mentioned. Oh, Okay. And it's a, it has a lot of the science behind mindfulness and then all the practice of how to do it practically. Are there any other activities that you want to talk about <clears throat> that you want people to know about? So I, my own website is uh, dianawinston.com. And our website for my UCLA center is uclahealth.org slash 
M-A-R-C, Mark, Mindful mm-hmm. Awareness Research Center, M-A-R-C. Mm-hmm. And so that's ways to access me and my teaching. I also teach at a meditation center called Spirit Rock right. Meditation Center, and that's up in Northern California. Right. And I offer a couple of retreats a year where yeah. we can do these practices. Yeah. Diana, I, I don't know how you feel about this. How would you like to lead us in a little meditation? I'm happy to do that. And can you can you pick something that's phonocentric? How do you like that? Freedom of choice. Well, let's just do the hearing meditation we've been talking about Beautiful, just so that fantastic. people can get a sense of that. Okay, so wherever you are, I just invite you to settle into a comfortable posture. Feeling your feet on the floor that's possible. And your eyes can be opened or closed as you wish. Maybe taking a breath or two to settle. And let's turn our attention to the sounds around us. There's sounds in the room, sounds outside the room. Just listen. There's nothing you have to do to listen. It just happens quite automatically. So listen with curiosity, openness. Often when we listen, we get caught in a story about what we're listening to. I like this. I don't like this. This is such and such. But see if instead you can simply Listen, not getting lost in a story, as if you were listening to your favorite music. Letting the sounds come and go. Now listen as far out as you can listen. What's the furthest away sound you can hear? Just soften and breathe. And let yourself sit in this expansive hearing, opening as wide as you can. And if it starts to feel too much, just come back and notice your feet on the floor. Imagine your mind is like the sky, vast, open, spacious. And clouds are rushing by. There's thoughts, emotions, sounds. Can you connect to the sky-like nature of your mind. And let's feel our body seated wherever we are. Feel your feet on the floor. Notice the impact of this practice. And whenever you're ready, you can end the meditation or open your eyes. Okay, I hope you found that listening meditation to be useful. Not to mention the dialogue that we had before that. 
And I'm glad that we were able to get into discussing some of those states which some people might label as transcendent or spiritual, states that I think are very valuable that people in the mindfulness, secular sphere usually don't touch upon. In the meantime, you can follow Diana simply on Twitter with her handle is at Diana Winston. I want to thank my multi-talented co-producer, the Hannah Bowers, the great interns Chase Crocha, and Jane Yee. And we'd really appreciate it if you took the time to leave the podcast a review and a rating if you liked it. And please share it with your friends and anyone you think would benefit from listening to us. You can follow us at Wolf and Tune. So until next time, we hope you continue in a higher octave and let's stay in tune.